0: Okay, so not that we don't appreciate Don Jay, but who votes Eliana for announcements? Yeah. Amen. We do love us some Don Jay, but Eliana, that was uh, that was a super blessing. So who am I dismissing? Just the elementary kids today, and the teens are super excited to stay in here today for Family Worship Sunday. Um, you know what I do love? I do love ministry that the Lord does through his church. and. Uh, This morning, what a great couple examples of that. I think Helena just emailed me yesterday or something and said, we're coming back from this trip and we have this thing we want to announce. And I had no idea what she was talking about, but I said, yeah, let's announce it. Because I figured if God's leading them to be involved in it, then it's something that we can get behind. And Caleb, bless his heart, the Lord awakened me at 2 o'clock in the morning this week. Actually, it was Caleb awakening me when he texted me at 2 o'clock in the morning. And he said, I just read this passage and I was so super blessed by it. Because I think when you're a college student, that's when you read the Bible is apparently 2 o'clock in the morning. And I said, well, if you were that blessed by it, then perhaps you need to share that at church on Sunday. And so anyway, just need to see what God does through his people as he ministers. And um, we're going to see that actually in our text today. So we do hope that you'll hang out afterward for the the agape feast. We're not back in the back. We're just gonna have some quick soup and bread, I think out there on the patio and I saw a bunch of Christmas cookies. Uh, So hang out if you can. It's uh, a wonderful season. We got a nice little break in the rain today at least long enough to enjoy some uh, some fellowship afterwards. So great text today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, you're going to want a Bible. And you can raise your hand and we'll bring you a Bible. Uh, you can certainly use a Bible on your phone. Uh, any Bible is a good Bible. So um, let's pray and just ask the Lord to bless uh, his word. And if you need a Bible, just keep your hand raised. And I think Rick and uh, Val are out there getting some for us. So let's pray. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for uh, this morning. We thank you for uh, your church, Lord, as you gather us together uh, so regularly, Lord. Uh, Just an opportunity to fellowship with one another and to encourage one another and to be encouraged, Lord, by you through your word. And we pray your blessing on this time now, Lord. We pray. Uh, As we do each and every week, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us, Lord. We pray that you alone would be our teacher today, Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So, Mark chapter 3, and we're picking up this morning kind of in the middle section of chapter 3 of what is Mark's kind of fast-moving account of the life of Jesus. Today we're going to look at verses 7 through 19. And it's a great section that I think is, uh, is just filled with lots of lessons for us as believers. Uh, I think it really gives us some insights into the way that the Lord Jesus calls each one of us unto himself, and more specifically, how he calls us kind of out from amongst the crowd, uh, to really to serve him. So cleverly, I have titled the message, Called Out from the Crowd by Jesus. So... Um, You know, we said when we left off in our text last time that we had come to kind of a significant marker in the ministry of Jesus after this grouping of these initial conflicts that Mark included for us in chapter two. Remember these initial kind of encounters between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. They had come all the way up from Jerusalem, up into the Galilee, and we watched as their legalism really clashed, you know, with this new thing that Jesus was doing, this brand new kingdom that he was here to now usher into existence, really through the proclamation of the gospel. And we talked about, we saw the fact that this is a kingdom that's marked by mercy and by grace and by joy, and most of all, by this freedom from this dead religion, that freedom that really comes to us and springs out of that beautiful personal relationship that we're called into with God himself. And we remember when we left off last time, Jesus had just clashed once again with the scribes and the Pharisees. This time it was over the healing of the man with the withered hand, which Jesus did right there in front of everyone in Capernaum, there in the synagogue, On the Sabbath day and it had so incensed these religious leaders that you remember the last verse last time it said that then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So here are the religious leaders of Israel now conspiring together with people who are really their arch enemies these are these politically minded group of herodians right those who were loyal to king herod and at this point the pharisees had just sort of crossed the line right they're now completely committed to just removing this radical rabbi Jesus, right? Removing his revolutionary methods and his message, removing those things as this threat to their power of this religious establishment of their legalistic version of Judaism. And so in that verse, verse 6, Jesus has now officially been rejected by all of the Jewish religious leaders. And now next, as we continue on, what we're gonna see is what Jesus did next, kind of in response to this. And Mark includes for us this next verse is really this wonderful contrast. Now we've seen how the religious leaders were uh, were approaching Jesus. Now we're gonna see how the people were responding to the ministry of Jesus. The first section of verses, we're gonna see Jesus and the multitudes. So picking up in verse seven of Mark three, it says, but Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great multitude from Galilee followed him. Now understand it wasn't time yet for a real head on collision, right? For a, a final confrontation with the Pharisees. So in response to this kind of mounting opposition, Jesus simply left, where the Pharisees were, right? He left the synagogue and he headed right down toward the Sea of Galilee. Remember there in Capernaum, we saw the synagogue is located relatively close right there to the sea. And we see that though Jesus could pretty easily escape kind of the the clutches of these religious leaders, he couldn't keep these incredible crowds now from finding him and from really just following after him. And I think the sense that we get from this account of Mark is that no sooner had Jesus stepped out of the synagogue, look again, end of verse seven, the great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea and Jerusalem, and Idumea and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing came to him. So these verses I think Mark paints this powerful picture for us just to show us at this point in Jesus ministry his fame is so great right in terms of this ministry he's doing remember up in the sticks there in the Galilee right, up in town way in the north of Israel, now multitudes of people are flocking out to see him and just to be touched by him. And this time, they're not just coming from the Galilee, but now they're coming from even further regions and even surrounding countries, right? Many people are making this hundred-mile journey up from Jerusalem to Judea right, even beyond, way down there in Idumea, which is down near the southern border of Israel's land. And then all the way to the east, people are coming, it says, from beyond the Jordan. They're coming into Israel. And then also from the north, right, 50 miles north, up from these pagan, these Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon, way up there on the Mediterranean coast. And so what we're seeing now is that Gentiles are now flocking to Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. It's interesting, that reference to the sea in the Bible, very often it symbolizes kind of the sea of the Gentile nations or the sea of the Gentile people. And some students of the Bible see in this language of Mark where it says that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea kind of an allusion to the fact that we're sort of now we're gonna see an opening up of his ministry now from one that had begun just focused exclusively on the Jewish people, now showing that this is something that's gonna be available ultimately to reach beyond into the Gentile world. So we're seeing these multitudes of Gentiles flocking to Jesus. And just think about the desperation that that shows, right? The desperation and the darkness in the lives of these people coming from so far away. Here's this word of what this man, right? This young Jewish rabbi, the things that he's doing there in the Galilee, and now they they begin to come to him, multitudes of them. Multitudes of these desperate people pressing in around him, simply trying to get close to him. So much so, look what Mark tells us in verse 9. It says, so he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. So here's Jesus, right, he's walking from the synagogue, headed down toward the Galilee, and the crowd is just pressing on him. Notice Mark tells us there in verse 10, the sick people aren't even waiting for him to reach out and touch them, right? It says they are just reaching out to touch him. And so we've got the lame and the blind, perhaps even the paralyzed, right, brought, carried by their friends. I'm likely thinking there were probably lepers, right, Gentile lepers who were mixed in with this multitude. And all of this, again, just this desperation of this crowd just surging toward Jesus, who by this point is right there backed up now on the beach against the water, and he's just got this wall of people in front of him, and behind them, another row and another row. And you just think about these hands that are reaching out, you know, this desperate crowd pressing in, so much so that he has to jump in a boat and be pushed out a little ways from the shore just to keep from being crushed by the crowd. Now, it's interesting that at, in this event, Only Mark records this specific detail about the boat here. And I think it suggests perhaps that this was a pretty memorable memory in the mind of Peter. We know that Peter was the one who supplied Mark with most of the eyewitness testimony for Mark's account. And Peter may have really remembered this detail because it was probably his boat, right, that they grabbed to rescue Jesus. And the reason I bring it up is though Mark doesn't specifically mention it here, the other times when we see Jesus cast out from the shore in a little boat from the crowds, what has he done every other time? He teaches them. And I believe that's exactly what's happening here, because remember, the ministry of Jesus was always about the message of Jesus, not simply about the miracles, but it was primarily about the proclamation of the gospel, the proclamation of this coming kingdom. And it's interesting there in Israel, right there in that particular area, right around Capernaum, the, the hills rise up kind of right from the shore and it creates what would be just a natural amphitheater. If someone were speaking from a boat, thousands on the shore could very easily hear. And my point here is that Jesus wasn't simply running away from these desperate multitudes, but as we've seen him do before, he was simply giving them exactly what it was that they were really desperate for. He's addressing their deepest need spiritually. They had come for a physical healing, but what they were receiving now was a spiritual blessing. And yet we see in the next verse, not everybody was blessed by the presence of Jesus. Look what it says in verse 11 and 12, a note that Mark puts in here. He says that the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God but he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. So understand, many were coming to Jesus for healing because they were possessed by demons, right? And these demons who were possessing these poor people, they instantly recognized Jesus for who he really was, right, nothing less than the Son of God Who they knew had come to earth now in the flesh. And they were greatly threatened by his presence there, because they knew they were absolutely powerless against him. And I think that it's it's his response to them that's interesting, it's important. Notice that Jesus never denied that he was the Son of God. And ironically, though demons are liars, right, because they serve the father of lies, right, Satan himself. In this case, they were telling the truth. They recognized Jesus, as we said, as nothing less than the Son of God, God the Son. And so Jesus didn't deny the truth, but notice that he was choosing to control the time and the way that that truth was going to be revealed. Remember, Jesus was always working according to a divine timetable that was established by the Father. And it's John's gospel, isn't it, where we see Jesus repeat that phrase a few different times when he says what? He says, my time has not yet come, right? And so here we see him kind of silence these spirits, right? These unclean spirits who for once were actually telling the truth, but he was submitting to that timetable of the father about this, what would be this progressive kind of revelation of who he was and ultimately what he came to do by dying on the cross. And it wasn't yet time for that step in heaven's plan, but it was time for the next step in heaven's plan. And we're going to see now Mark explains that to us beginning in verse 13. We're going to see they're going to leave the multitudes there by the Sea of Galilee. And it says in verse 13, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted and they came to him. Now, remember, we said that at this point, Jesus was at a pretty pretty critical point in his ministry, right? He had emerged with this wonderful message of the coming kingdom. He'd authenticated that message with all of these miracles. He'd gone throughout the Galilee, remember, on that preaching tour, right? He was preaching and he was healing. By this time, he has made a considerable impact on the hearts and the minds of multitudes of people. We've got this crowd completely surrounding him and healing is constantly flowing from him and people are being continuously touched and blessed by him. And yet, in the middle of it, Jesus withdraws from all of that. He pulls away from all of it, no doubt following this divine directive probably given by the Father through the Spirit. And so we move from Jesus with the multitudes Now we see Jesus up on this mountain, right? From that kind of lakeside lowlands, Mark says that Jesus went up on the mountain, right? One of those hills we just talked about, which surround the Sea of Galilee in that area. Now some students suggest, and I think I would agree, that he went up on what we know as the Mount of Beatitudes, right? It's right there above Capernaum. And he brought with him just a handful of all of those who were already following after him. He withdrew from the crowds and now he's gonna start to minister, especially to a very special group of men. And we're gonna see in the very next verse, these are the 12, right? The 12 disciples who would later become the 12 apostles. And this was an especially significant time. In one sense, I don't think this is overstating it to say that there was nothing in Jesus' three years of ministry before the cross that was more significant than this moment. As he's about to call these men to himself. These were the men who were going to carry on what he started. These were the men who he knew would need to extend his work throughout the whole world. right? And Luke tells us that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray and that he continued all night in prayer to God before he selected them. Jesus earnestly sought the face of the Father. He was looking for wisdom. He was looking for direction in the selection of these 12 men from all of these others who were already, aside from the multitudes, there was already a huge group of disciples that were committed to Jesus, who were already following after him. And yet these 12 men were gonna be picked out of all of that to be part of his intimate inner circle, right? So he prays all night. Look at verse 14. It says, then he appointed 12, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. So Jesus is going to impart, he's going to entrust to these men, both his message and his ministry to start to perform these same kinds of miraculous healings. Now, we're going to look more in a minute at what they were supposed to do in verses 14 and 15, okay? So there's our outline slide for this. Can I even do that? I'm not even sure if that's allowed. But anyway, I want to look first at who they were in verses 16 and 19, through 19. So it says in verse 16 that we have Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boangres, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him and they went into a house. So there they are, right? The 12 disciples who would later become the 12 apostles. So these are the men who were called to be apostles of Jesus. And the truth is that we don't really know very much about these 12 men, especially when you consider the incredible impact that these 12 individuals were gonna have on the course of world history and the impact that they would have on the destiny of multiplied millions of human souls. Now, Peter, James, John, of course, Judas, we know a little something about, but think about it. These other eight men, at least as far as concerns the biblical record, we really only know their names, which I actually think in and of itself should speak volumes to us about the economy of heaven because their fame and their reward is reserved for them in heaven. We're told in the book of Revelation that their names are for all eternity inscribed upon the 12 foundations of God's heavenly city, right? Our eternal home, the new Jerusalem. It says that the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them, were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Other than that, we don't really know anything about these guys. And yet they were all appointed by Jesus himself to be his apostles. I mean, just think about that. You know, we live in a, in a time... And certainly it's not just unique to our time, but I think it's getting worse all the time in our time because of social media. But we have this terrible fleshly tendency to take people and to promote them, right? To kind of put them up and, you know, kind of idolize them and things like that because they have so many views on YouTube or they have so many followers or they have so many likes or so many or talks or whatever it is that they have, they've got a lot of them. And so we think that they should be celebrated, right? But those who are famous in heaven are those who are famous in the economy of heaven and of eternity are simply those who are called and who are faithful to what it is that God has entrusted to them. And I think as we think about this list of this group of men, another thing that's also so important to understand is the fact that these apostles at this point when Jesus first called them to himself and then appointed them, they were all just extraordinarily young men, especially by the standards of that culture. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think about the apostle John or Peter or James. We mostly tend to think of them and probably because most artist renderings throughout the centuries, but we think of them nearer to the end of their lives, right? When they're older men, when they're about to die their martyrs' deaths, but it is almost certain that each and every one of these men were probably at this point in their early 20s. In fact, it's believed that the apostle John was probably no more than likely in his mid-teens. He's probably no older than 16 at this point. And yet this is this astounding, astounding, astonishing, whatever it is. It's an astonishing responsibility that Jesus is giving to this group of these young men at that age. This is who he's calling aside. He's appointing as his disciples and later to become his disciple. You figure he is entrusting the entire advancement of the kingdom of God, right? Following his death and his burial and his resurrection and ascension, he's entrusting the entire kingdom of God to these men. That is astounding. And I think that one of the main lessons just concerning who Jesus chooses to be his apostles is to realize that any calling in our life, it's that God's callings are his enablings. Whatever it is that God has called us to do, he will absolutely then always enable us to do. And to me, calling is everything. It's everything. Because once we learn for ourselves, and we know, you know, this is what God has called us to do, then we can be absolutely confident that God is going to make us successful. Now, maybe not successful by the standards of American Christianity or of American culture, but God will make us successful according to how he views success. And what it is he's called us to, he's going to make us fruitful in it. And I think that that's just a tremendous truth and a great encouragement to every one of us as we try to serve the Lord. God's call is our guarantee of our success. And this list of names proves it. Right? Because what this list of little-known names also tells us is that by and large, not every time, but for the most part, God chooses very ordinary kind of people to do his work. And it only works because, not because of who they are, of course, but because of who he is. Here you have this list of the 12 apostles. I mean, there is no formal education, certainly not of a religious nature. They are mostly fishermen, right? We have Matthew, a tax collector who was considered, we said, a traitor to the Jews because he was loyal to the Romans. We have Simon, a zealot. He was basically part of a terrorist group who was trying to overthrow the Romans. Right? Imagine those little get-togethers, right? Judas, probably he was the one who was most qualified, most educated, most cultured, most refined of the group. And we all know how that turned out. But these men have no wealth, they have virtually no life experience beyond just growing up and working in this little hick area around the Sea of Galilee there. They are all very, very rough around the edges, they are very, very young as we said, and yet God is going to use them. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 17, these are the same guys who it says that these are those who have turned the world upside down which is actually of course to turn the world right side up because it's already upside down, right? Which all of that is simply to say, never ever talk yourself out of what God is calling you to do in your life because of those things, right? Because you look and you think that, you know, you see what God's calling you to do and you you see what would be required in order to do that and you realize you don't have the natural ability and you don't have the skill to be able to possibly fulfill that. And you see that huge gap between what you know you are and you know that God's calling you to be, but we can never ever allow that gap to be used by ourselves to talk ourselves out of just stepping out into that gap in faith to the calling that God's given. The fact of the matter is that the fact that God chooses us should always leave us a little bit baffled, right? Because you know that certainly it leaves everyone around us pretty baffled when he does call us, right? Why did he call that guy? Right, but we should be the most astounded, right, that he has called you to do what he's called you to do and that he's entrusting us with that responsibility. I think it was uh, Gail Irwin, a great Calvary author, he put it so well, he said this, he said, the only thing that makes me wonder about God is his choice of me, right? And I tell you, I wonder about every Sunday morning about that, right? But this is what the Bible says, right? Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he says this. He says, you see your calling brethren that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence." Now, as I read those verses, did anybody see themselves in those verses besides me, right? You're like my life verses there, right? But then this is what Paul says. He goes on and he says, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So the reason that God chooses weak things like us and foolish things like most of us, just these ordinary kinds of people for the most part, the reason he chooses us to advance his kingdom is that when he does something great through our lives, then everybody will know that it's only because he did it. It has nothing to do with us. That's the reason that he works through these foolish things. I mean, think about it. It is a marvel that Christianity has survived for the past 2,000 years. In light of the people he chooses to use, in light of the people he chooses to make leaders within his church, in light of who he saves and the way that he makes us this beautiful banner of this wonderful work that he loves to do among mankind. And yet, the kingdom of God does continue to advance. And it advances because Behind that calling of each and every one of us foolish things, God adds his power, right? He adds adds his enablement related to that. And so it's important, I think, for us to understand that about ourselves. He chooses us so that when he uses us, everyone will say, well, that can't be that guy. It can't be her, right? God must be alive and he must be the one doing that work. And so he receives the glory. And I think that there's one name in particular in this list that gives us some very important insight to just how it is that God does that. Do you know the name I'm talking about? It's the very first name in the list. Look back in verse 16 where Mark specifically starts the list with Simon to whom he gave the name Peter. Now Peter, of course, aside from Paul, who's gonna come along later, Peter is probably the most well-known of the apostles. There's so much that's written about Peter in the gospels, so much in the book of Acts, and then of course Peter himself is the author of two wonderful letters out of the New Testament. And Peter was, even according to Paul, he was one of the chief apostles, which is very likely why he's listed here first unless it's because he gave the li- his name in the list first when he gave it to Mark, right? But at any rate, we do see in the gospel accounts that Peter was one of the leaders. And we notice here that his original name is included, his original name, which was Simon. And Simon was a pretty common name. It was based on Simeon, one of the sons of Jacob, one of the heads of the 12 tribes. And yet remember that Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, is about to change his name to this name, Peter, which in the Greek is actually Petros, which is the Greek word for a rock or a stone, right? And sometimes he's called Cephas, which is simply the Aramaic version of Peter or rock. Now here's the thing, names have meanings, especially in that culture, in those times. Because when we look at Peter in the early days, he doesn't seem to be like much of a rock, does he? He's not very fixed, he's not very stable, he's not too solid. When you think of a person who's a rock, you think of someone who is stable and solid and steadfast, right? fixed in their character and not easily moved. By nature, we know that that was really not at all the case with Simon Peter. You know, especially in the early chapters of the gospel accounts, he was really, in many ways, he was a very impetuous kind of a 20-something-year-old young man, right? He was the kind of person that all too often, right, doesn't Peter always seem to speak before he thinks? Peter is that kind of the ready-fire-aim kind of a guy, Right, Peter's the one that Jesus has to kind of correct over and over. And I think that if Jesus ever actually did, if Jesus ever actually did do a face palm, it was, probably would have been over Simon. right? And yet Jesus gives him this solid name, Peter, and he does it long before he actually was. What that tells us is that Jesus didn't see Peter for who he was as much as he saw him for who he would eventually become. And guess what? Jesus sees that with each and every one of us as well. Jesus looks at you, Jesus looks at me, and what he sees is what he's gonna make out of us. He sees what he's going to make us into. And so I think that we can be encouraged just by looking at the life of Peter, right? God doesn't just start a job and not finish it, right? That he who's begun a good work in you, Paul says, will be faithful to complete it. Because what we see is by the time we get to kind of the end of the story with our friend Peter, we find that he is indeed a very solid figure in the church, Right, He is very much a person that you could depend on and that you could rely upon. His letters, I think, are some of the most encouraging and some of the most comforting of all the New Testament writings. And you might remember when we went through them, I guess it was almost a year ago, they're just filled with this sense of heavenly wisdom and this real otherworldly compassion that was way, way beyond Peter. And I think that Peter would be the first one to tell us that none of that was to his credit, but it was all to the praise and the honor and the glory of God and the work that Jesus had done first in him and then through him. And that's exactly, I think, what we see Mark lay out for us right here in our text. Because go back with me now, let's fill in the blanks in verses 14 and 15. This is where I think Mark describes what it is that Jesus really called these men to. So look back in verse 14. It says, Then he appointed to twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. Now you can put a little star or maybe even a big star by those verses because I think in those two verses we see three things that Jesus called these men to, but it's the order of them that's so important in our Christian lives and our Christian service. Now we've said before that every Christian... We're all called to give our lives away for the edification of the body of Christ and for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. We can't simply be like Christ without also serving in some way. And when he calls us into that area of service, whatever it is that he's called us to do, we need to do it in the order that we see him give here. And the priority I think is so important that number one, it says he called them what? that they might be with him, right? that the, the relationship was the key, that even before they were called to be apostles of Jesus, that they were called to be in relationship with Jesus right, the relationship was the absolute foundation. It is everything, and that is the most important thing, that they would then grow in their calling and grow in their gifting simply by virtue of being with him, spending time with him. Now, of course, we don't have face-to-face time with Jesus like they did, right, to, to really share their lives with him, but that same connection and that same relationship now happens for us, through the Spirit, right, in our life and in our times of devotion, right? Keeping that priority of the relationship as the supreme thing in our service. And then second to that, important but secondary, he then sends them out to do those things that he had called them to do. And we need to always remember that Jesus chose us first just to be with him. That's what he's concerned about more than anything. Uh, Let me tell you, he is not primarily concerned with what you can do for him. Jesus didn't save you because he needed you to do something for him. He didn't save me because he needed me to do something for him. He has a whole host of angels that could very easily do his work and probably do it far, far better than we could. They could do it far more effectively and with lots less drama. Right? than he gets from humans. He could get it all done and yet he chooses to use us, but he chooses first and foremost to bring us to himself. Never forget that the greatest, the greatest thing in my life is not that I get to be a pastor. The greatest thing in my life is that I get to be a child of God. That's the greatest thing in my life. Now being a pastor is a great thing too but that comes out of the fact that I am first a child of God. And in the same way, the greatest thing in your life, right? the greatest moment in your life is not going to be when you do some great thing for God. The greatest moment in your life hopefully already happened when you first met Jesus. When you were first called to Jesus and you were drawn unto him. Let's not ever forget, he saved us not to be servants, but to be sons right, and to be daughters. And so we need to stay focused on that relationship and cultivate that relationship because really that's where the joy is. That's where the delight is and that's where the blessing is. And then all of that other stuff is going to flow naturally out of it. I love what Paul says to the Ephesians. He talks to the Ephesians about the unsearchable riches of Christ and to the Colossians. Remember, he explains that in Jesus, he says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. And sometimes I look at verses like that and I just sit back and I reflect and I think, how foolish am I that so often I just settle for so much less than God has offered to me in Jesus. I spent all my time doing all these things rather than simply seeking to know and just to explore those unsearchable riches and just to simply be with him. Because someday, right at the end of the day or at the end of the last day, right, at the end of each one of our last days, that is all that's going to matter is being a child of God. That's where the focus has to be. Right? he Like these men, he called us that we might be with him and out of that he's preparing us and he's changing us to be like him so that he can then appoint us to serve him. Look what Mark mentions at the end of verse 14 and on into verse 15, then that he might send us out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. So he called us first to himself, Then he appointed us to go out in service. And that's the way that it works. That's the order that it works. right? God's called each one of us to serve him, whatever that looks like in your life. Now, I'm not going to get into a discussion together this morning about preaching or healing or the casting out of demons, right? About how these gifts and ministries are in operation within the church today. You guys know we could get lost for a month of Sundays, right? Debating and dissecting all of that. And we know Christmas is coming, right? So we don't want to get waylaid with that. But I think that it's very safe to simply broaden that and to simply say that what Jesus did is that he sent these men out to serve him for the advancement of the kingdom generally, and that these are the things that they did specifically, And these may be some of the very same things that some of us are doing today, right? Healings are happening. Demons are certainly being cast out. The gospel is absolutely being preached. Whether you're standing up here or not standing up here, you are preaching the gospel of Jesus through your life to that person that you sit next to at work, through that person that you go to school with. Whether you're laying your hands on the sick or you're, you're praying for a person and by the power of the spirit, they're released from demonic oppression that they're suffering from. God is using you to bring healing and to bring deliverance into people's lives simply as you come alongside them and as you just love them and as you minister to them. Again, whatever that might look like in your life specifically, understand that God is using you to reverse the work of Satan in people's lives. He's using us to reverse the effects of sin in the world. Now, the world is pretty messed up, right? And we as Christians, we know why it's messed up. It's messed up because of sin. It's messed up because people are disconnected from the God who made them, and they're out there trying to figure out how to navigate this life apart from their maker, and it just doesn't work. So we know what the problem is, but guess what else we know? We know what the solution to the problem is, right? We know, not only do we know what the solution to the problem is, but if we're Christians, then we have personally experienced that solution to the problem, and now we can tell other people, and we can impart to them what that one singular solution to the problem is. Right? We've talked about it before. This, you know, this God who's reconciled us to Himself through Jesus, He has given to us what this ministry of reconciliation. That's what we're called to do. And I think these verses tell us exactly how it works. Right? That Jesus has first and foremost called us into this personal relationship to be with him, and then as we grow in that relationship, then he starts to show us where to go and what to do from there. To bring the gospel and to bring that healing and that deliverance through the truth of the gospel into the lives of people. That's our mission. Wherever it is and whatever it is that we are doing, to simply live Like we're on that mission and then watch the Lord really start to touch the lives of people in the specific things that he has us doing. Now, this whole idea of missional living, you've probably heard that before. It sort of became this kind of overused, overtired, kind of a Christian buzzword like 15 or maybe even 20 years ago. And yet there's a beautiful kind of a truth behind it. Because so often, I think, in the church, we can think of a mission as a trip. Like, like, you know, going to go down to Mexico, or we're going to go on a trip to go somewhere and help people in the the wake of a natural disaster. And those certainly are great missions, but our whole lives are intended to be a mission. right? You guys have heard me quote this verse a hundred times. Acts 1.8, but there's something different I want us to see in it this time, when Jesus said that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Notice he said that we're going to be his witnesses, not that we're going to go out witnessing. Now going out witnessing is fine, but that's very different from simply being a witness. Right? We are constantly on this mission with this ministry to live like we're on mission in the midst of what really is this natural disaster that's all around us all the time. And for each of us just to do it uniquely and specifically in whatever calling, in whatever way, whatever different, whatever different kind of mission field that God puts us in. Now, what does that maybe look like in your life? Well, I don't have the slightest idea. It's your life. So I don't know, but I'll tell you, God does know, right? And he wants you to know. Just to get alone with him and your Bible and just to simply say, God, here I am. You know, I want you to work in my life. I want you to work through my life. I want you to touch others with my life. Let me know what it is that you have for me to do. God's not hiding from us, right? He promises that if you seek me, you will find me when you search for me with all of your hearts. And here I'll tell you what's usually going to happen. What you're going to find as you just do that, as you personally just seek him, you're going to start to discover where it is he wants you to go and what it is he wants you to do. And what you're going to find amazingly is that you are already very much suited to do it. Those things that he's calling you to are very much suited to who you are and what you love. And you're gonna suddenly realize, wow, I think God made me to do this thing. And yes, he did. And you're just gonna discover that you're probably already doing that thing to some degree. You're gonna find that the things that you like and the things you've already been interested in, these things that you've already done, God's gonna take those and he's really gonna start using all of those same things. I love what it was Augustine who said, just love God and do what you will. Right, you might like working with kids. You might really love nursing people back to health. You might enjoy overseeing different kinds of projects, or you may love to teach people. You may love to make music. Whatever it is that you love to do, just start now to simply do it, but to do it as unto the Lord. Do that thing, but do it now with a gospel-minded, kind of mission-focused, very intentional sort of way, and say, Lord, just take this and bless it and use it, and then just watch the way he'll do that. Right? And what you'll find is that what you're calling is, then you'll start to see these people around you really be impacted, but what you're doing is you're simply keeping that relationship between you and Jesus right at the center and let the rest flow out from there. You have gifts, you have abilities, and you have interests, and you have things, and you have friends, and you have people around you. You've got this entire sort of sphere that God has placed you in, that's the place of your ministry. So be missional there. And guess what? What you're gonna find is all of a sudden this preaching of the gospel of Jesus is just gonna flow so naturally right out of your life. And I'll tell you what, it's not gonna be too preachy. It's not gonna be preachy like a Sunday morning is preachy sometimes, right? But the people around you are going to see that it's just coming out naturally. And then all of a sudden that healing that that person in front of you needs, it's just going to come because the Lord is going to give it. And that deliverance that that person needs from the darkness that's overwhelming their life, God is going to use you and he's going to work through you because that's what our mission is. Our mission is to reach people like these disciples. Right, this diverse group of these unskilled, untrained, rough around the edges kind of guys. And he took them in and he had them with him. And then he sent them out to all these different places in all these different ways just to preach and to heal and to deliver. And that's what he's sending us out to do. That's our calling. And I'll tell you, unless the church does that, nothing's ever going to change. Nothing in this world is ever going to change. Because unless people's hearts change, nothing will change from the better. And people's hearts will only change through the power of the gospel and only we have that to offer. But I wanna say this as we close, and again, especially as we consider communion this morning and as we think about the cross together this morning, Again, I want to take us back and to remind us, and just to really beat this dead horse that I've already killed, right? Take this back to where it all starts. He went up on the mountain. He called them to himself, those he wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed the 12, what? That they might be with him. Right? We have to keep the main thing the main thing. And it's such a challenge for so many of us because we can look around at the world today. But remember, there is always going to be more need than we can ever get to. And the challenge, I think, in our service to the Lord is we are in this danger of making it more important than simply our relationship with him. But I, I promise you that is a sure recipe for a crash and burn a very humbling crash and burn. There's no longevity in serving him that way. And we need for you not to crash and burn body of Christ needs for you not to crash and burn because we need the gifting and the calling we need every single person in the body of Christ to be doing whatever it is exactly that God's called them to do and living the lives in a missional way that God has called them to live and one of the surest ways to get off track in doing that and then to become totally ineffective in anything he has for you is to elevate service to the point where it crowds out that beautiful relationship. It just simply doesn't work if we do it in the wrong order. I always think about that announcement on the airplane, right? about the masks. right? You need to put your own mask on first before you try to help someone else with their mask. And any parent knows how totally counterintuitive that is. Like, I'm going to sit and watch my kid gasp for air, right, while I'm putting on my own mask, right? And yet, it's too hard to help anyone around us breathe if we ourselves are gasping for air ourselves, right? So put your mask on and just breathe, right? Breathe in that wonderful relationship that you've been called into with Jesus and then watch... As you just breathe that in and as that fills you up, you just watch how effective you will start to be in whatever the calling you have to help everybody around you make sure they get their masks on. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to ask the team to come back up and we're going to celebrate communion this morning. What a great opportunity, uh, as I said, just to reflect on the cross and to reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus. I think I say it every week, but communion here at Calvary Chapel Mountain View is what's called open communion. You don't have to be a member here to take communion. We don't even have membership here at this church. If you are a born again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're part of the family and you are welcome to take communion. If you're not a born again believer, then communion really isn't for you because communion is that time when we as believers look back on what it is that Jesus did for us through his sacrifice on the cross. Now, again, I say it every time. If you're not yet a believer, we would love to help you with that. I think Pastor Jeff will probably be uh, over here. And there will be somebody who will magically appear on that side. And uh, are they already there? Oh, she's already there. Um, But... uh, Pastor Jeff and Ann, they'll be able to talk with you and to help get you established if you want to take that step and begin to be with Jesus in that relationship that we talked about this morning. So as the kids start to minister, um, you can come on up. You can grab the communion elements. We have some of those crazy little cups. We also have the individual elements uh, available for you. But just grab those and take them back to your seat. And just take some time just to reflect between you and the Lord. And uh, as the Spirit leads, you're welcome to take that on your own. And then uh, when we're all done, we'll close uh, in one more song. Amen. So, Father, we thank you so much for today, Lord. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have to reflect on uh, your son's great sacrifice on our behalf, Lord. And we pray as we do each time we take communion, Lord, that this would never become something that is common to us, Lord, but that that reality would uh, just be fresh and new each time we do it, Lord. And we pray that you would quicken our hearts even now this morning by your Spirit and that you would uh, do that deep work in us that only he can do. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you. pray that you would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen.